Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 16th, 2022. Um, on... Um, Last month, we did an interesting, actually, it was a couple of months ago, with an interesting conversation with the historian Roderick Beaton uh, on his book about Greece. He has a new book out called Greece, Biography of a Modern Nation. And he argues, I think, in the book that Greece brought modernity or the reinvention of modernity to the world through its political rebellions, through its diasporas, through its notions of modernity and through this endless um relationship between Greece as an idea in a political state and Greekness around the world as an ethnic identity may be true. Uh, Greece is certainly an important player in modernity. Uh, but another country at the other end of Europe has, I think, in some ways equal claim to pioneering the notion of modernity as uh, uh, in terms of its national history in terms of its biography. Uh, rather than Greece, of course, that's Ireland, right at the other end of, uh, of the European continent. Uh, Ireland is a remarkable country on, on many levels, and uh, it's covered, I think, in a particularly innovative way uh, by my guest today, who has a book, uh, like Beaton's book, about uh, the modernity of his country. It's called On Every Tide, the Making and Remaking of the Irish World. And it's by uh, an Irish historian, Sean Connolly, who is joining us from Belfast today. Uh, Sean, I don't want to make this into a conversation about Greece versus Ireland, but it is interesting that the Greeks and the Irish do have some sort of uncannily things in common, don't they? I never thought about that, to be honest. Um... But yes, you're right. The Greek Revolution of the 1820s uh, energizes the whole of um, of Europe. Think of someone like Lord Byron heading off to, to fight there. Um, Ireland is is a bit more of a slow burn, I suppose. But in many ways, yes, I would. I try to make the case in the book for arguing that Ireland, um, the Irish diaspora, is a part of world history uh, because okay, people have been crossing oceans for centuries or millennia. But generally speaking, what's been happening is that people have been going from rich countries um, to impose themselves on weaker, more vulnerable societies. Think of, for example, the Spaniards in Central and South America. Um, when the Irish start emigrating in very large numbers, first to Great Britain in the late 18th century, then to the United States in the 1820s, it's something quite different. Um, this is rich, advanced countries the two most advanced economies of their day, the Great Britain and the United States, importing people from a poorer country as a source of cheap labor. And contemporary observers are quite clear on this. The Irish are there to dig the ditches and to lay one brick on top of another to do the heavy manual work that um, it's hard to get anybody else to do. Um, and this is something very new. And of course, one reason why suddenly you need to bring in a cheap labor force like this is this is the time when slavery is ceasing to be an option uh, when, you, when you need people to do the brute heavy work. But the point is that where the Irish go, many others had to follow. From the 1880s, tens of millions of Eastern and Southern Europeans after the Second World War, um, 
inhabitants of the former French and British empires. And um, right up to the present day, the only difference today is that it's no longer just the West. I mean, the oil-rich states in the Middle East, um, the tiger economies of uh, Asia import people from poorer countries like Bangladesh in just the same way that you right, know, right, the, um, the World Cup coming up in Qatar. I think there'll be a great deal of conversation about that. Let, let's talk a little bit more about the, the details. You, you note in your book that um, uh, 8 million people emigrated from Ireland. Now, you suggest also that uh, uh, identity is never just a matter of statistical averages. It's a subjective state. This exporting of Irishness and of manual labor. Was it also the exporting of a, an Irish sensibility, an Irish politics, an Irish aesthetic? Um, well, that comes a bit later. I mean, part of the point about you know, saying that the Irish are you know, the first people to become a source of cheap migrant labor is that you know, when they enter these more advanced societies, they enter at the very bottom. Um, they are slotted in as um, the very bottom of a, a, a social hierarchy. A and it takes time to, to rise from that position. But by the late 19th century, the, the Irish have done that. And in some areas, they have been hugely successful precisely because of what they brought with them. Uh, by the late 19th century in the United States, the Irish have carved out a dominant position in American uh, urban politics, you know, running those the, the celebrated um, political machines also in the labor movement, as well as very effectively colonizing the Catholic Church you know, throughout the English-speaking world. And you're right, they're able to do that because of what they've brought with them from Ireland. Uh, I mean, they don't bring many marketable skills, they don't bring much in the way of capital, but they do bring two crucial things. I mean, first of all, because of the political development of the United Kingdom, of which Ireland is a part, they have experience of politics. They know how politics work. In a way, the people being brought up in the absolute monarchies of continental Europe don't, and therefore they're able to adapt um, to the um, legal system and the political system they find themselves confronting. And secondly, and very important, they bring with them the English language. Um, the um, even those of them whose first language is Irish can probably speak English as well. And for an immigrant group to speak the language of the host country is hugely important. So, yes, by the late 19th century, the Irish have created a place for themselves. I mean, they're still not welcome in the golf clubs and social clubs of the elite, but they are a very powerful interest group within American society. And they've achieved a similar prominence in the other places where smaller numbers go, like Canada, Australia, New Zealand. It's interesting when listening to you to, to compare in contrast, Ireland and Italy, one thinks, of course, of The Godfather. There are many films about Irish immigration to the United States, but not really like The Godfather, where Irish or Sicilian, Sicilian immigrants created an alternative state. As you suggest, the Irish brought political organization as opposed to alternative organizations like the Mafia. Did they bring left-wing politics, Sean, union organization, one of your earliest, uh, and not one of your earliest ancestors, uh, your namesake, Sean Connolly, was the first rebel to be killed during the Easter rising and anti-colonial um, political rising against the British uh, in, in Ireland. 
was um, socialism perhaps something that the Irish brought to the world? Um, well, that's one of the very interesting things, because of course in Ireland itself, socialism has never really made a breakthrough. I mean, someone like um, the Sean Connolly you mentioned is a militant national, revolutionary nationalist, um, but um, the, the movement he's involved in, um, there are individual socialists, but I mean, the, primarily Irish nationalism has been about national independence. And the, the, what has happened in Ireland, what happens in Ireland is that uh, issues of class and economic reform always take second place to the notion of national independence. And the interesting thing there is that when you look at the Irish in, for example, the United States, um, yes, the, the potential, um, the potential for left-wing uh, politics um, is liberated in a way it isn't in the homeland. So in the 1880s, for example, the Irish are very prominent in powerful movements like the Knights of Labour, for example, which break away from the traditional um, narrow uh, confines of trade unionism in order to, for example, include women and women's work uh, and to include African-Americans in a way that uh, the more uh, longer established uh, trade unions didn't do. And yes, there is a period in the 1890s when the Irish are at the forefront of left-wing politics uh, in the United States as well. So by the 20th century, the Irish-dominated labor movement has very much um, become a, a, a movement to protect particular economic vested interests. It's no longer interested in um, radical social change. What about the role of the church, Sean? Um, uh, obviously, uh, the church tends to be a more conservative uh, institution. In, in terms of the role of Catholicism, particularly in this uh, making and remaking of the Irish world on every tide, what, what particular notions of relig religiosity in the church did the Irish bring uh, to North America mm -hmm. and much of the rest of the world? Well, the, what's happening in Ireland in the mid-19th century is in many ways a revolution in, um, in popular religion. Um, the Catholic Church um, is spearheading a movement to uh, promote uh, much higher levels of, of popular piety. Um, in the United States, or, um, actually not everywhere in the English-speaking world, United States, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Irish um, come to dominate the Catholic Church. Uh, and this can't be taken for granted. I mean, for example, in um, initially in the United States, the Catholic Church is dominated by um, by French speakers. Later, there's very powerful competition from Germans. Um, but the Irish have two things on their side. One is they're very good at networking and at playing the politics of the Vatican. Uh, the other is that the um, the Vatican makes the pragmatic calculation if Catholicism is going to flourish in places like North America, Australia, New Zealand, it needs to be led by people who are native English speakers um, <clears throat> because they will be best placed to promote the interests of the Catholic Church. So um, by the late 19th century, for example, two thirds of all the bishops in the United States are either born in Ireland or are um, of Irish descent. And right through the 19th century, you get um, hundreds of Irish-trained, Irish-born priests and nuns going out to the English-speaking world, to Australia, Asia, to North America, uh, to become the backbone of the Catholic Church. Uh, and 
Um, that's why if you look at Hollywood films in the mid-1940s, like Angels with Dirty Faces, the Catholic priest is an Irish-American Catholic priest. And this is also very important in keeping the Catholic, the Irish Catholic community in the United States together, um, because the parish becomes the central institution uh, of the local community. And at the head of it, there will be a priest who is of Irish descent or possibly born in Ireland, um, an institution that people can very much uh, identify with. Um, and that's why today, when we think of the typical Irish American, we think of a Catholic. Though in fact, statistically, if you look at all the people in the United States who identify as of Irish descent, there are more Protestants than Catholics. But our image of the Catholic Church is of, of the Irish American, sorry, is of no, Catholic Irish Americans. I mean, one of the amazing statistics you actually note in the book is that 70% of priests in Charlotte, for example, are uh, Irish. Uh, Sean, you had an interesting piece um, uh, in the Belfast uh, Telegraph um, talking about why people are still leaving Ireland. Uh, another piece I saw suggests that Ireland is full now. To what extent are the Irish still pioneering? Um, uh, emigration. To what extent are the Irish still leaving Ireland, even though Ireland today in the 2020s is infinitely wealthier uh, than it was in, in the 19th century? No, I think it's a completely different picture. Uh, Ireland today is a uh, an importer of people. Um, it uh, has, a, a, I, I can't remember exact figures off, um, off the top of my head, but uh, it has a substantial uh, immigrant uh, population. Uh, and once again, in many cases, it is that immigrant population who now the labor force doing the job that the natives um, uh, don't want to do. Um, there is continued Irish immigration, but it's totally different. It's the um, uh, <clears throat> emigrating for people in modern Ireland, seeking work abroad in Great Britain or in America or in continental Europe. It's no longer a lifetime choice. You no longer leave home expecting never to see home and family again. It's a, uh, it, it can be a short-term thing. You go abroad to work for a few years. It's a movement of well-qualified, um, uh, marketable people responding to short-term economic incentives, um, uh, not, not necessarily a, a lifetime's choice. Is so, there anything um, unique today, uh, Sean, you, you're involved in a number of conversations on the Irish diaspora. Is there anything today in, in the contemporary world which distinguishes the Irish diaspora from the Greek diaspora or the Italian diaspora or the Jewish diaspora? Around the world? Yeah, I think what distinguishes it, and it's one of the things which I'm trying to, I try to probe in the book, is that, okay, as you say, something like 8 million people emigrate uh, between the 1820s, roughly, and the 1960s. But, I mean, in world terms, that's a drop in the ocean. I mean... In between the mid-18th, mid-19th, mid-20th century, you're talking about 60 million Americans crossing the Atlantic, 50 uh, million or so Chinese and Indians being dispersed around the Pacific Rim. Um, Irish emigration is small because it's a small island. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the Irish then become very prominent and um, they remain prominent. And what's odd about that is that mass emigration from Ireland um, beyond the British Isles really comes to an end in the 1920s. I mean, for another 40 years, um, people continue to emigrate in large numbers, 
but from the end of the 20s onwards, they don't go any further than Great Britain, England, Scotland, Wales. Um, with the Great Depression, emigrating to the United States is no longer attractive and uh, people stop and the numbers going slow to a trickle. Now you would expect therefore that the international prominence of the Irish would fade away um, as when the Irish populations overseas are not being um, you know, refreshed by continued new faces from the homeland. But on the contrary, what we've seen in the last 50 years or so is a massive explosion of interest in Irish culture uh, internationally. Um, and the obvious example, which you will now encounter in any major city you visit, pretty well anywhere in the world, is the Irish pub. You know, from, uh, <clears throat> uh, from the Leaping Leprechaun in San Francisco to Molly Malone's in Hiroshima, um, every major cities will have Irish pubs. Are they um, real though? And I've spent some time in Ireland and the Irish pubs around the world that I've seen aren't like the Irish pubs in Ireland. Oh no, they're, um, they're a marketing device by a couple of big drinks companies who provide prefabricated kits. Um, they don't represent the, the traditional Irish pub. I mean, if you had been around to go into a, a pub in rural Ireland in 1920, you, you would have been entering probably a grocer's shop with at the back, a short counter across the back of the shop, a couple of wooden stools um, and uh, one or two beers on offer. Um, the, the, the pub, the Irish pub today is based on the sort of lounge bars of the newly affluent Ireland of the 1960s and 70s. And you're getting prefabricated kits, but then they are kitted out with um, symbols uh, of um, uh, a colorful folk tradition. Manufactured, uh, globalized notion of Irishness. You mentioned slavery earlier. Um, Sean, we did a, a show um, in March of this year, actually, perhaps not uncoincidentally, with the Irish journalist Sally Hayden. Uh, she mm -hmm. has a book out, My Fourth Time We Drown, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route. It's about the reappearance of slavery in Africa associated with <clears throat> terrible humanitarian crisis of, of migration. What do you think the Irish case should teach us about today's tragic stories on the Mediterranean, for example, where we see the reappearance of slavery and of terrible stories of death and suffering amongst uh, particularly African migrants wanting to go or wanting to come to Europe. Yeah, I mean, this is something just impossible to ignore while writing the book. Now, you, you do have to be careful here. I mean, you can't just reach back into the, the, the past and say, oh, well, you know, this proves something about the present. I mean, I think history is much better at um, teaching us you know, to be aware of our blind spots rather than prescribing clear solutions. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the case of the Irish, um, if you go back to the United States in the 1840s, 1850s, there is um, tremendous um, hostility to these newly arrived Irish. Yes, the society needs their work, but people are not at all happy. Um, and um, <clears throat> the echoes of the present day are, are really striking. I mean, uh, <clears throat> today, for example, uh, people talk about the great replacement, this fantasy that um, hordes of migrants are going to overwhelm the white populations, um, that Islam is going to replace Christianity as a savage religion. Go back to the 1840s, 1850s, exactly the same sort of exaggerated fears. 
that if this tide of um, Catholics from old-fashioned, autocratic, undemocratic Europe uh, continues, then the values of the American Republic, liberty, democracy, equality, will be overthrown. The, the inventor Samuel Morse, the man who gave us Morse code, wrote a historical pamphlet arguing that um, uh, the American Republic would be uh, overthrown in a coup and that all these migrants would establish um, a, uh, a Catholic monarchy uh, run by some minor offshoot of one of the European royal families. So, yeah, um, the, the same sort of exaggerated fears, the same tendency to demonize migrants, while at the same time, the society depends on them to do the work that nobody else wants to do. So, um, uh, I mean, that is one major thing. It just allows us to look at some of the fears being expressed and put them in context, because of course, none of those gloomy prospects uh, what about contemporary America? Um, we've done many shows on migration, on <clears throat> what it means to be a 21st century American, for example, with mm -hmm. Eric Sanchez, whose family came from Central America, shows about Vietnamese immigration to Texas, mm -hmm. shows about a gay son of a first-generation Peruvian immigrant who became a Silicon Valley star, another one about unaccompanied migration from El Salvador to, to California. How do you think the Irish fit in at all to contemporary America? Have most people of Irish descent kept their Irish identity or they are essentially part of this intermingling of cultures, this notion of Americanness? Uh, I think most of the building blocks of a distinct Irish American identity have um, weakened over the last 40, 50 years. If you went back to 1950s, you could talk about a clearly defined Irish American uh, culture, very much built around the Catholic Church, the trade union movement, um, and a politics, particularly the Democratic Party. None of those things applies anymore. There's been a serious fall off in religious practice uh, in recent years. Um, more and more Irish people of, of Irish descent uh, are now solidly part of the middle classes. Uh, no, the trade union movement is no longer central to their identity. And of course, partisan political loyalties have shifted completely um, from the 1980s onwards, the, uh, when uh, growing numbers of Irish um, Americans uh, supported Reagan and the Republicans. There's no longer a clear link uh, in political affiliation. Uh, some reports would suggest that um, a majority of people of Irish descent possibly voted for Donald Trump. So in that sense, um, what you've now got is a fairly shallow sense of identity without the sort of solid mooring in institutions that it had, say, um, 70, 80 years ago. Do you regret um, that, uh, Sean? Should we regret it? Um, well, I think it is It is probably... An, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that people have completely forgotten who they are. No, it's just that it's no longer centrist in the same way. It's, it's a wide but, but shallow sense. But, but I mean, the problem here is it's so easy um, <clears throat> to focus on you know, self-defined groups. I mean, I made a lot of use, for example, of sociological studies um, by, from the 1930s onwards, because what these professional sociologists tended to do was just to take a, a random central population who think of themselves as Irish and then ask them questions. Uh, whereas if you, for example, you know, focus on um, or, you know, the people who organize St. Patrick's Day parades or Irish bars in South Boston, whatever, you're looking at a, a self-defined you know, group, the people 
for whom their Irish identity is important. And there is a big difference. There is a, a core population um, for whom an Irish identity is, is very important. And then I think you know, in recent decades, there has been a rediscovery of, um, of ethnic identity among lots of ethnic groups, what people call the, um, uh, the Roots Two movement, that, um, <clears throat> where you know, a range of ethnic groups, people whose parents or grandparents wanted nothing more to assimilate, now want to reclaim their, their cultural identity. And of course, that is very healthy. Uh, but equally, if people don't feel a need to do that, um, if they're content with their identity as Americans with a little bit of Irish background somewhere vaguely in their consciousness, well, that's their choice. What about the island is, of course, a northern European um, island, uh, like Iceland. We did a sh an interesting show recently with a, a writer about how Iceland's elves can save the earth. It show, uh, it's a book called Looking for the Hidden Folk by Nancy Marie Brown. And it's about how um, Icelandic traditions of elves and magical figures in the earth give, our, uh, give Icelandic people a respect for the environment and for uh, lack of development. Of course, uh, we also did a show on the Vikings recently with Kat Jarman. She has a book, River Kings. Is there anything still left of that in Ireland? I, I'm not suggesting that the Irish believe in elves, but the appreciation for nature, for the land, like in Iceland, or perhaps as a legacy of, of, of Viking culture, which the Irish also brought to the world. Of course, their coming to the new world was very much associated with industrialization and development, but did they also bring an appreciation for nature? Um, well, if you're talking about the Irish movement in the 19th century, no, because most of them stayed in the cities. That's one, one of the big things in the North American, also in the United States specifically, that an urban, sorry, a rural peasant people become an urban working class. So in that sense, there is, there is no direct um, a transfer. If you're talking about modern Ireland, I mean, one of the most striking changes of the last 50 years has been the collapse of uh, traditional religious and supernatural beliefs. I mean, up to the 1970s, it looked like Ireland was bucking the general trend within the Western world. Uh, levels of religious practice were still astonishingly high. In Dublin in the 1970s, something like 90% of the population attended mass uh, at least once a week. A significant number attended more often. Um, now the figure is probably down around 30%. There has been a very dramatic collapse in um, uh, Irish um, uh, religiosity. And more generally, I think what is striking is the way in which modern Ireland has redefined itself um, as a, I, mean, I mentioned earlier, the Irish pub. Um, I mean, that reflects a broad shift. You're now defining Ireland in terms of a confident, cosmopolitan, secular society characterized by um, a sort of genial um, uh, hedonism. Uh, I mean, modern Irish people will be embarrassed, or are embarrassed, if somebody insists on dredging up the iconography of leprechauns, for example. It's just, it's, it's a part of the past that they've left firmly behind. I'm it's guessing, even... though, that uh, eventually it will probably be rediscovered. Uh, Sean, finally, um, we, we began with Greece. Of course, Greece throughout the 19th century acquired more and more land and became modern Greece after the First World War. 
Ireland and territory is still a big issue. There are lots of conversations about whether or not Ireland will eventually reunify the north and, and the south. Uh, you're talking to me from Belfast in the north, particularly with the crisis in Britain and their uh, carry-on style farcical uh, rejection of the uh, European Union. What's your sense of the future of Ireland as a player in Europe and in the world, perhaps a united Ireland? eventually free of, of the United Kingdom? Um, well, if, there was, if there's going to be a moment when uh, a movement for a referendum to reunite Ireland, I mean, under the Good Friday Agreement, um, it specifically provides that if there is the opportunity for, um, or if uh, there is evidence that a majority of people are likely to support unification, the British government is obliged to call a referendum on the topic. And if there was ever going to be a moment, well, in the aftermath of Brexit, particularly, and the current um, uh, economic uh, trials, and and more generally, the the sense that you, you're now confronting not a pan-British identity, but a, a rather narrow English nationalism. Um, all of that would seem to make uh, some sort of unity referendum a possibility. But the statistics still suggest that um, there isn't quite a majority. I think the other point is that a lot of voices in the Irish Republic have tried to argue the case that um, you don't want something like the referendum on Brexit, you know, a 48-52 vote, um, a narrow victory, which leaves a huge part of the population um, uh, feeling cheated. I mean, no, the moment for a referendum is when it's clear there'll be overwhelming support. Um, and we're a long way off. Well, the Irish question isn't ended there, which is good news. Uh, Sean Connolly's book on every tide, the making and remaking of the Irish world. It, it, uh, it came out last week in the US. It came out with a appropriately green cover in the, in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom and Ireland uh, last month. Congratulations, Sean, on that book. Fascinating subject and, uh, and, and a lovely book, a lovely piece of history. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Sean? What do you enjoy? What books? Uh, two most recent books I've read, well, you asked me earlier about uh, emigration. I gave a very cautious answer about, as an historian, but a person who tackles the whole question of emigration uh, fearlessly from on is uh, Gaia Vince in her book, uh, Nomad Century, where she makes the case that with, with uh, climate change, large parts of the world are going to become um, uninhabitable in the next 50 years, while currently in inhospitable reasons, regions like much of Scandinavia, Iceland, uh, Siberia are going to become fertile and welcoming. And she tries to make the case that the only sensible thing in terms of the um, survival of the species is um, international agreements to manage the process whereby people move from regions that are becoming uninhabitable to um, new territories opening up, much the way that European settlers um, uh, colonized the American Great Plains in the 19th century. Now, you might say it's visionary um, in the sense that it's, it envisions their way forward or it's utopian, but anybody who wants to certificate about um, migration policy you know, really needs to read the book. Uh, the other one, very different, uh, was Caroline Elkins's uh, Legacy of Violence, which is looking at the, um, uh, the role of violence in the maintenance of the British Empire right across the 20th century. Now, you might say there's nothing new about this. We're all familiar with um, some of the 
um, more brutal episodes in the British Empire, like, for example, Amritsar, where um, you know, mm. soldier fired on an unarmed crowd, killing what, anything between 380 and 1,000 people. But generally, a lot of liberals, like myself, tend to say, well, yeah, that's what happens um, when armies are sent to control people, and we're talking about breakdown of discipline or the odd bad apple. What Elkins shows is that's not an adequate explanation, that you're, in fact, looking at a strategy, that the same methods crop up, Palestine, India, Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, the same yeah, method, I think, uh, we're the same actors. Right. The same, you know, the same actors appear moving from one trouble spot to the other using the same counterterrorism tactics. That violence is built into the empire. It's not a matter of a few bad apples. Yeah, we had uh, William Dalrymple on the show, whose book The Anarchy is about the British colonization of or, or looting of, of India. I think he would be very much uh, in your camp on that one. Mm.